The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Joshua 2, 1 through 14. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order of the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Shio and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens, above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for your life, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We need you. We're clinging this morning to the promise that the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord remains forever. And so we are looking to your word now, the word that remains forever, that shows us you and shows us who you are and shows us Christ, our only hope and our only Savior. Lord, we pray that you would do what you have done for so long, want to continue to do today, that you would take your word, get it into our hearts, such that we are changed. You send your spirit now to do that. We love you. We need you. For all these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. One of the things that has always appealed to me about Christianity, one of the things that has always kind of made this whole Jesus thing more believable is the people included in the storyline of the scriptures. Like if I personally was trying to make up a world religion, and for the record, I'm not, but if I was, I would not include some of the individuals the biblical authors include as central to the narrative of the story of God. Let me just give you a few examples. Abraham, right? The one who God uses to start his whole world redemptive plan, a people for himself in a place, is also a liar and a misogynist and a passive self-protective husband who willingly at one point hands his wife over to Pharaoh to save his own skin. Or Moses, right? As we saw last week, the one who leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt, also a murderer and a coward and a people pleaser and a runaway, 
Or Peter, one of the three closest of Jesus' disciples, also denies Jesus three times at his moment of, a moment of greatest need. And when he becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem after the resurrection, is very hesitant and struggles for quite a while to accept non-Jewish people into the church. And all of those examples, and many more, if you were to read the Old Testament, give me so much hope. And I think they should give you hope as well. I love the stories of the Bible because they are not and cannot ever be read as awesome people doing awesome things for God, that if you would emulate your life after, you too would be awesome. You can't read the Old Testament that way. It's not just a bunch of great things to emulate. The stories of the Old Testament point us to this reality time and time again, the grace and pursuit of God for the messed up and for the addicted, and for the hurting for the down and out and the causing pain and receiving pain, people like you and like me. And that's part of what we're trying to emphasize time and time again over the course of this series, that the story of humanity, once again, is not us seeking God, but God seeking us. We're going to see that really clearly in our story today that Katie just read for us, Joshua chapter 2. And here's what I want to hone in on. Here's our kind of big one takeaway theme. God seeks the broken. Joshua chapter two, God seeks the broken. So if you have a Bible, if you need a Bible, there's some in the rows, grab that. We're just gonna walk through this story for the majority of our time together this morning. So you're gonna want it in front of you. You're gonna want the text there. Joshua chapter two, that's where we're gonna be looking. While you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of the backstory so you know kind of what's happening in the story. So if you remember last week, we were in Exodus chapter three and God calls Moses out of hiding in Midian, burning bush, all of that. And he says to Moses, Exodus three seventeen, that he was going to use him to lead his people out of Egypt and bring them to the land of Canaan, what is known in the scriptures as the promised Land And so Moses goes, he does all the back and forth with Pharaoh. You've seen the movie, you've read the text, right? Ten plagues, all of that. Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. And shortly after leaving Egypt, they walk through the wilderness and make it for the first time to the edge of the land of Canaan, Numbers chapter 13. And if you were to read that account, it really doesn't go all that hot. So they get to the edge of Canaan and Moses, who's leading the people, says, let's send 12 men, 12 spies to go scout out the land and come back and report on what we should expect when we go into Canaan. And so they send the 12 spies, they come back, 10 are like, bad idea. Let's not do it. The people are huge. This is not going to go well for us. And two of the men say, no, God is faithful. He's given us the land. Let's trust him and go for it. Those two men are the men Caleb and Joshua. The people, unfortunately, listen to the 10. They don't try to enter the land. God punishes them. No one from that generation is allowed to enter into the promised land except for two men, Joshua and Caleb. Fast forward now, 40 years later, Moses and that whole generation has died. Joshua is now in charge. And that's where we're picking it up today in Joshua chapter two. If you're a visual person, I have this terrible map for you. I make my own slides. So they're in Egypt. All right, and they're traveling down. You see where that loop is? That's like Canaan attempt number one, and then it doesn't go well, so they're just wandering around for a little bit, 40 years in the wilderness, and now they're up to the top right. If you'll see there, top right, right under 17, you have Gilgal and Jericho. All right, that's where we're hanging out today. Joshua chapter two, feel good? All right, take it off. It's ugly. Here we go. Joshua chapter two, verse one. Our slides go online. You can look at it later. And Joshua... The son of Nun, he's in charge now of Israel, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies. I love that. He's like, 12 didn't work. Let's just send two. Saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. 
And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. All right, pause there for a little bit. Let me clear up some details so you understand what's happening. Two things you have to know. First is I want to talk about Jericho. So Jericho, as we just saw on the map, is a fortified military city that sits on sort of the northeast part of Canaan. And it was well known in the world at that time for two things, its vices and its brutality. To say that Jericho was a wicked city is actually a bit of an understatement. It was a city full of evil and every form of vile practice. You can actually read later, if you want, about some of their pagan rituals and some of their evil in Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'll just give you a snapshot. A few of the marked moments or parts of their evil lives. First, as they were known, that as part of their sacrifice to false gods, they would actually burn some of their infant children. Second thing that Jericho is known for is giant orgies where part of the party that they would have in worship to their false gods was to sexually assault both men and women from nations that they had conquered. On top of that, all sorts of divination and fortune telling and attempts to summon the dead. It's just a horrendously evil place. There's no other word for it. It's evil. It's broken in every way, shape, and form. That's Jericho. Second thing I want us to get clear on is who exactly is Rahab. She's going to be the central figure in the story this morning. The text very clearly in verse 1 refers to her as a prostitute. And this is no small detail. In fact, every other time Rahab shows up in the scriptures, except for one, she is referred to as a prostitute. In Hebrews chapter 11, what is often referred to as the hall of faith, it's sort of a who's who list of Old Testament people, Rahab makes it in and the text says about her, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, which I think is very frustrating because it doesn't say by faith, the murderer Moses, or by faith, the murderer David or adulterer David. And so on the one hand, it's like, come on, like another descriptor maybe could follow her throughout history. But on the other hand, because God is the author of the scriptures, there's something really important about that detail. Something very important about Rahab and her story. There's a beauty of what God is about to do in the text that comes from the fact that a prostitute is not just included, but actually at the center of God's plan. It's a beauty that's about to take place because... Here's the reality. We don't know a lot of Rahab's backstory. She just shows up right there in the text, chapter 2, verse 1, a prostitute whose name was Rahab. But we can do our best to assume some things about what, because of what we know about prostitution and life in ancient Canaan. So you see, in this part of the world at the time, women as a whole would be treated as second-hand or second-class citizens. Most women were not allowed to work. They were not allowed to participate in the local economy. They had uh, only a de facto citizenship, often through or via their husband's citizenship. And so women in general are treated as second-class citizens. Now imagine if that's how women as a whole are treated, how much worse would the treatment of a female prostitute? We also know it's very likely Rahab would not have chosen this life on her own. This is not the story, as one commentator puts it, quote, of a woman who wanted a freer life, a life of thrill and excitement away from the drab monotony of home. It's not what's happening at all. It's that it's much more likely, as was common practice in Canaan and other ancient cultures, for Rahab to actually have been sold into this life in order for her family to pay off a debt they could not afford. And most likely that happened years, if not decades, before we meet Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. And so you can only imagine the cumulative effect of being sold into slavery by your family 
and experiencing years, if not decades, of sexual abuse, what that would do to the human soul. Right, we said this last week. One of the things I want us as a church is not to read these stories like they're novels. Don't read them like these are some characters that have some primitive understanding of life. Right? These are not cavemen and cavewomen. These are real men and real women with hearts and souls and lives and feelings and emotions like you and I. So just imagine what decades of sexual abuse does to the human soul how it shrivels the ability for someone like Rahab to give and receive love, how it hardens a person, how it breaks a person. And this is what we're encountering as we enter this scene of Joshua chapter two, as we're introduced to the place of Jericho and the person of Rahab, and I don't know a better word to describe it than simply the word broken. It's broken. Now, let me be really clear what I mean by that, because my whole point today that I want to get you to see is God seeking the broken. So let me make sure you understand what I mean when I say broken. The word in the scriptures use of God's design of how the world should work is the Hebrew word shalom. We've talked about this before. Shalom is throughout the Hebrew scriptures, and it can be translated as flourishing or wholeness or rightness. Things are in shalom when things are as they should be. Specifically, shalom shows up in the scriptures in three primary relationships. Humanity's relationship with God, humanity's relationship with each other, and humanity's relationship with ourselves. When things are in shalom, there is flourishing in those three primary relationships. We are right with God, we are whole with God, right with each other, and right with ourselves. Now, one of the consequences or results of sin, when Adam and Eve sin, sin enters the world, is that the world that you and I live in no longer operates with the default setting of shalom. Now, instead, the world is broken. Shalom is broken. It's not flourishing anymore. It is messed up. It's jacked up. It is broken. And so instead of flourishing with God, rather, humanity is now enemies in rebellion against him. We do not experience intimacy with him. In our natural state, we do not wake up close with God. We are not walking with him in intimacy and flourishing and vulnerability and love. Now, because of sin, humanity is not flourishing in our relationship with others. You know this. You live in the world. What are we constantly doing? Mistreating one another, hurting one another, harming one another, abusing one another, lying to one another, and the list goes on and on. Humanity is also not flourishing in our relationship to ourselves. And I don't mean there's some absence of like self-love and self-positivity. What I mean is that at the innermost core of our being, we as humans are not as we should be. You see, the language of the scriptures is that sin is not simply something we do. It is also a kind of disease of the soul, right? Jesus says, I've come to heal right? Sin is not just actions we do or actions we don't do. It's an illness within ourselves constantly deforming us away from the likeness of Christ. Ignatius of of Antioch, he's a first century church father. He got mentored by the apostle John, which I think is very jealous. Um, He says that apart from Christ, our souls are, quote, diseased with ungodliness and wicked lusts. And so when I say this setting in Joshua 2 is full of brokenness, that's what I'm referring to, that not rightness. It's not whole, it's not flourishing, it's not as it should be, that Jericho and Rahab are not whole, they're broken. It's messed up out here in the surrounding circumstances and in here, the hearts and lives of the people. So now that we've got all that settled, let's see what God does, shall we? Verse 2. 
And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And, verse 5, sorry, I turned too far. When the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. So the king hears, spies are in the land, sends some guards, ask Rahab. They're with Rahab. She's like, I don't know. Verse 6. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So it's harvesting season. And what they would do in Jericho is when they would bring in the grain or wheat from the fields, they would lay it out on the roof to be dried out by the sun. So Rahab on her roof has some of that dried out wheat. And she's like, great hiding place, hide under there, lay the hay on top of you. That's where she's put the men laying on the roof covered in hay. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, the question that arises, at least in my heart, is why does Rahab do this? Like here she is in this city and she knows these two men have come and they've come as a part of the nation that's going to overthrow the city. And she's like, awesome, I will take care of them. I will lie to the king. I will hide them. This makes no sense why she would risk her, her life in order to protect these men who have come to conquer the city. So why does she do this? Verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, before you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Let's just pause there for a moment. There's, there's something really crucial going on in these four verses. All right, let me, let me show you this. Let's do a little Bible study, all right? Notice the contrast of language between verse 10 and 11 and verse 9. So stick with me here, okay? Look at verse 10 and 11. Look at how she starts. She says the same phrase in verse 10 and 11. For who? This, you can participate. For who? We have heard. Then look at verse 11. And as soon as who? We heard it. Who is Rahab talking about here? The people of Jericho, right? She says, we, the people of Jericho in the city, have heard what God has done for you. Specifically, how he has parted the Red Sea and you've walked across on dry ground and how he has delivered you from the hand of these two wicked kings. So track what's happening here. News and stories about the miraculous, powerful, mighty acts of God have spread across the world and they've now reached Canaan and they've reached the city of Jericho. And Rahab says, when we collectively as the city heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man, aka the courage has left the city. So don't miss what this means. This is God seeking the broken city of Jericho. Do you see that? Here's what he's doing. God is using the stories of his power and might in the lives of the Israelites to put his glory on display for the broken people of Jericho. He's going, I'm going to do miraculous things here for these people, and news is going to spread about this, which he promised would happen in Exodus 9. 
He tells Pharaoh, everything I'm about to do, the reason I'm doing that is not actually for you, it's to deliver my people and that my name would be glorified among the nations. That's Old Testament language for, so everybody else will see that I'm awesome, that I am God. And so he says, what I'm doing with the Israelites miraculously in their lives is so that the nations and the world would see it and they would know that I am in fact the one true God. That They would turn from their own ways, turn from worship of these false gods, turn from all their idle, evil practices and worship Yahweh, who is the one true Lord. This is how God works. This is how he worked then. This is also church how he so often works now. He uses his power in the lives of somebody else to speak his glory such that others who do not worship him yet will start to worship him. That's part of the whole goal behind these stories. We're trying to show these stories before each sermon, not so they're like, oh, that's cute. And we can kind of like golf clap, like, thanks for your vulnerability. We're showing these stories to go, would you see the glorious power of God in this person's life such that you yourself would worship him? Such that you yourself would turn to him. That's what God is doing in Jericho. Wicked, evil, vile, burning infants, Jericho, and God seeking them out. He wants them to worship him. He's patient and kind. Hear of my miracles. Hear of my power and turn and respond and give up your false deeds and worship Yahweh. But then notice the contrast between 10 and 11 in verse 9 how the king responds, and how Rahab responds. So the whole city hears the stories. They all know what's going on. The king sends his guards, deal with it, get these men out of here, but look at how Rahab responds in verse nine. I know that the Lord has given you the land. We heard the stories. I know what they mean. And look at what she says in verse 11. Here's her interpretation of it. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. All commentators agree this is a kind of classic Old Testament conversion story. That someone from a pagan nation, not a part of the people of God, acknowledged that Yahweh is the one true God. She goes, I saw it. I heard the deeds. I heard what he did. I heard the miraculous things. I know the king wants to get you out, but here's what I know. I know that he's God. I know that Yahweh is the Lord. And she puts her faith in him. She responds in faith and her faith leads her to act. Look at verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, here's what you should do, Rahab. Tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and gather into your house, your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house, his blood is on his own head and we're guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. 
Rahab puts her faith in the one true God. She saves the lives of these two men. They honor this agreement. She ties the scarlet cord in the window a few chapters later. Joshua chapter 6, the Israelites come, they conquer Jericho. You know, they march around the walls, that whole thing. Rahab and her whole family are saved. And Joshua 6 tells us Rahab lives out the rest of her life as a part of the people of Israel. Her story becomes marked in the history of God's people. From Rahab's lineage, a few generations later is going to come Ruth. And a few generations after Ruth comes King David. And then several more generations after that comes the Christ, King Jesus. Rahab makes it into the Hebrews 11 hall of faith. James 2, she's brought up again as a clear example of a living, active, obedient faith. This Rahab, a life and a story full of brokenness. God seeks her out, chases her down, draws her to himself, saves her and her entire family, brings her into the family of God and uses her in his redemption story, not just for the Israelites in this moment, but for salvation for the whole world. This Rahab. So I wonder this morning, and the question I want to spend the rest of our time wrestling with is if he will seek Rahab in this broken place with this broken of a life, do you think he might also seek you too? Do you think in your brokenness, he might also pursue you? Now, I don't know all of your stories. I know some of your stories, but I also know that you're human. And so chances are, because you're human and because you live in a world that is not defaulting into shalom, that your life is probably more full of brokenness than you want it to be. It's probably less like flourishing, less like wholeness, less like rightness, less like peace than you want it to be. There's probably brokenness in your relationship to God. Maybe for you, you've never surrendered to him as Savior and Lord. You've been going about this thing on your own, trying to make your own way or run your own life or be your own king. And you just, you feel at a deep level what Blaise Pascal said, a vacuum-shaped hole in your heart. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but you've been rejecting the voice of God in your life. And so you're functionally, like I, I know I'm good with God functionally because of Jesus, or uh, positionally because of Jesus, but functionally I'm just kind of going about my own way. Like I, I have not experienced, whatever that means, I have not lived in any amount of intimacy with God in who knows how long. I don't know what it means to pray. I don't know what it means to hear from him. I don't know what it means to seek his face. I've, I've said I've got the title Christian and I've put my faith in Jesus, but I'm just really doing whatever I want to do. You sense your relationship with God is broken. What about not brokenness in your relationship to, with God? What about brokenness in your relationship to others, right? Abuse that you've lived through, the pain of loss, Parents who didn't love you like you wish they did, siblings who mistreated you, heartache you've had to endure. You just feel like, man, if I just look at the trajectory of my life, the summary is beat up, cast aside, and rejected. You sense the brokenness at the expense of others. Maybe the brokenness you know of in your own soul. You might be coming in this morning well aware of your own shortcomings, your own failures, the way this corrupting disease of sin has pervaded your life. No one needs to remind you of the ways you've hurt others or mistreated others or used others, the way you've lost your temper or cut others down or lied to your spouse or hurt your friend or betrayed your roommate or yelled at your kid. The list goes on and on and on. You know the addiction you've been carrying. You know the, the righteousness gap between who you desire to be in Christ and who you actually are on Tuesday. You feel the brokenness. 
and the cumulative weight of all of that brokenness just feels like maybe the summary term you would put on it is a giant X over your soul and over your life. Like you just, I've seen the pattern. I've seen the history. I've seen the trajectory. I've seen the present. I've seen my past. And I've, I see where I think this is going in the future. And the whole thing is just summarized as broken. It's just broken. And I've lived enough life to experience how other people don't really want me because of my brokenness, that I don't really want me because of my brokenness. And so I just automatically am going to put God into that category too and assume also, yeah, of course he would not want me in my brokenness. If that's where you are today, if you're like, I don't relate to that at all, we'll get to that in a second. But if you're like, if that's that's where you f- you're like, yes, I just, I feel that. Then let me just encourage you. You are exactly in the right place for God to pursue you and find you. Because here's what I love about the kingdom of God. What I love about the kingdom of God is not just that it's open and available to the broken, but brokenness is actually required to enter into it. Like, have you ever stopped to sit and think about the reality of our faith that says not only you can come to Christ if you're broken, but in order to come to Christ, you must acknowledge that you are in fact broken. That's Jesus' whole message, right? What does he say? I have come not to call the righteous to repentance, but who? The sick, the sinners. I've come to heal and redeem and restore. Jesus came seeking and saving the who? The lost, Those stumbling around like they're in the dark, blind, constantly bumping into wall after wall going, I have no idea where I'm supposed to go right now. Jesus is like, perfect. It's exactly where you need to be for my resurrecting grace, for my power in your life. That's why I love the story of Rahab, right? That he sees her and the banner over her life is no longer going to be broken, destitute, cast aside, rejected, pushed out, but now redeemed and a part of the family of God. And I love this with Jen Wilkin. Here's here's how Jen Wilkin puts it. She says this. She says, we should not be surprised to find in Rahab's story a story of redemption. Although it is perhaps a little bit of a different story than we may have thought it to be, because God is always most pleased to work through the the last and the least. This is how our God works. I mean, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is like big manifesto for life in the kingdom of God. How does he start it? Very first thing, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are humble and being humbled by life. Why? For they will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the good news of the kingdom. God seeks Rahab in her brokenness to draw her to himself. And church, here's the good news. He is still doing the same thing today. And I know that confidently because Jesus is all over the story of Rahab. Did you see him? Right? Christ himself in the book of Luke says, the Old Testament is all about me. It points all to him. When you're reading the Old Testament, it's not awesome people doing awesome things for God that you should pattern your life after. It's man, Jesus is coming. That's the whole message of the Old Testament. Did you see Jesus in Joshua chapter 2? No? Sweet. Let's look at him. Verse 18. Verse 18. Behold, the spies say, when we come into the land, what shall Rahab do? You shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. You shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. If anyone goes out the doors, his blood on his own head. We're guiltless. 
But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on your head. Why was Rahab saved despite all of the brokenness of her life and circumstances? Because by faith, she was covered by the scarlet cord in the window. By faith, the scarlet cord was the banner of protection and salvation over Rahab. Church, how can we be saved and reconciled to God and brought into his kingdom and kept in his kingdom as his children despite all of the brokenness of what we've done and what has been done to us by trusting in faith the covering of the scarlet blood shed on the cross? Do you see that in Rahab's story? The scarlet cord hanging over her house is the banner of salvation. If you're under the scarlet cord, you will be saved. Here's what it does. It points us back to the story of the Passover, the 10th plague, where the angel of the Lord will come and the firstborn will be killed, but you will be spared and sacrificed if what? If you kill a spotless lamb and put the blood over your doorposts. Points us backward. The people of Israel, as they're reading this story and they think of the scarlet cord, they go, oh, remember what God did to spare us. Remember how the scarlet red over our lives is evidence of his salvation. And then it also points us forward to the scarlet red blood on the cross, which covers over us and says, anyone under this banner of scarlet red will not live in their brokenness forever, but will be redeemed. It's Christ in Joshua chapter two. Isn't that awesome? No, sweet. I love the scriptures. Jesus and John, I mean, you're reading Joshua 2 and you're like, it's the story of Rahab saving some spies. Awesome. And then you get to that and you're like, Jesus is in the text pointing us forward because the whole message culminates in him and his life and his death and his shedding of his blood and his resurrection. Why? To restore the shalom that was broken in Genesis chapter 3. That's the whole point. That's what he's doing, and that's where we're headed. He comes, he lives, he dies, he shed its blood, and he rises again to make us once again able to flourish with God. He dies, he lives, he dies, he sheds his blood, he rises again to make us able actually to like each other, to flourish with one another, in all the heart, and all the mess of being humans in relationship. He comes, and he dies, and he sheds his blood, and he rises again to once again bring flourishing to our souls so we don't have to live in the corruption and mess of sin anymore. And this is why, if you read the New Testament, the authors make a really big deal out of blood. It's one of, if you're like new to Christianity, one of the weirdest things about this faith that we have. We sing about the blood. We drink every Sunday in remembrance of the blood. It's very strange, but here's why. First Peter 3. That's what Peter says, knowing, church, that you were ransomed, redeemed, purchased, bought back from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And this is 1 John 1, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's one of my favorite hymns, says it. We're going to sing it in a little while to close the gathering. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath, no longer under the punishment of God. Save from wrath, washed clean and made pure. Given the righteousness of Jesus. This is what our God does. The scarlet covering of the blood of Christ is offered to us. He seeks us in our brokenness. And so the question for us is, will we turn to him as Rahab did in faith? 
So let me close by giving you a practice to put this into your life this week. The reason why we close with practices is that we will not just hear the word, but we would be doers of the word. As James encourages us to be, as Jesus encourages us to be in Matthew 7. And so a practice for you, if you want to step into this re- responding to the seeking of God in your brokenness is very simply the practice of confession. Talk about this a lot as a church. We push into this a lot as a church. Confession, very simply, is agreeing with God that what is wrong is wrong and what is right is right. Very simply, confession is agreeing with God that what is wrong is wrong and what is right is right. You can confess in the scriptures to God. You also should, in the scriptures, confess to one another. James 5 tells us that. 1 John 1 tells us that. What we do is we bring our sin before the Lord and before his people. And in doing so, it's not some weird like masochist practice where it's like, I just want to feel bad about myself for 30 minutes. The practice of confession is going, I'm trusting that as I bring my brokenness to the Lord and to others, the blood of Jesus, in fact, does cleanse me of all unrighteousness. We're trusting in the blood. It's a practice of trust and rejoicing in grace that though sin is real and hard and though our lives and our souls and the world is broken, not as it should be until Christ returns or calls us home, we're still trusting in the covering of his blood. So this week, take some time, whether that's prayer and care in your groups, whether that's on your own, just you with the Lord, take some time to bring and confess your sins to God and to remember the blood of Christ, which is the double cure save from wrath, and makes us pure. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you, and we are so grateful for Joshua chapter 2. We're so grateful for your word that stands forever. And all of the ways it points us to Christ, Lord, that Rahab, by faith, rescues these spies, saves their lives, hangs the, the scarlet cord, the banner of salvation over her house. Lord, we see that and we see your seeking of her, your seeking of Jericho, your seeking of this broken people in a broken place, Lord, and we respond knowing you're seeking us in our brokenness as well. Lord, I pray for two specific groups in the room. Lord, first, for those who are deeply aware of their brokenness right now, who are given all the caveats, all the excuses. Yeah, but what about, yeah, but this, yeah, but I I know what I'm going to do in the future. Lord, I pray by your grace and the power of your spirit, you would speak through lies. They would see that one of the titles of the enemy is the accuser, who according to Revelation lives to accuse the brothers. They would see accusations and lies of the enemy for what they are, and they would know that in their brokenness, you seek them, and you pursue them, you love them, and you are kind to them. The blood of Jesus actually can and does cleanse all sin. Lord, I also pray for those in the room, Lord, like me, who want to ignore our brokenness, who often want to caveat out of our brokenness, who want to reject even the idea of brokenness. For some unhelpful version of self-love or self-pity, it just doesn't work. Or do we know the way that will run? I've seen it in my own life. 
some point, my love for myself runs out. And I need something deeper. I need something truer. I need something stronger. I need your love, your promise, your faithfulness. Because when I am faithless, which is often, you remain faithful. So Lord, I pray for those of us who are all experiencing our brokenness right now, Lord, that you would speak in kindness. And for those of us who are trying to run from our brokenness, you would also speak in kindness. You would do what only you can do, what you need to do. We love you. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen.